listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. y'all are familiar with uh, the People of Walmart. It's a website. Are y'all familiar with that website? It's been around for a while, and uh, every week they add new pictures of people that you may see at Walmart. Uh, disclaimer, I shop at Walmart. I'm good with it. I'm not, this is not like an anti, you know, macro kind of store, but it's just interesting what you see at Walmart. So I found a few pictures that were acceptable to show to y'all this morning. If you want to find some other ones, I cannot recommend the site, but I can only say that it exists. So here are some pictures that I found this past week, and these are actually all from this past week. These were uploaded in the past seven days. So here's the first one. It says pick up on aisle two at the bottom. If you notice, though, there's a Ford F-150 sitting right there in the fresh produce section. I don't know where this was, uh, but this is maybe something that maybe you're not really surprised to see it at Walmart, right? Uh, here's the next picture. Uh, there, somebody saw this guy. He looks like uh, almost like a hipster, um, maybe a, a hippie, Abe Lincoln. I don't know, uh, but they thought it necessary to take his picture. Maybe if you want to, uh, you know, uh, post your own pictures to that website. There's that one. Here's the next one, uh, and maybe this is why you know so many things are happening where you can't get. You have to wait in line so long for your refill. But there's the the pharmacist uh, laying on her back checking um, Instagram account. Here's the next one. Uh, here's a lady who just rolled out of bed, literally, barely, and decided to go to Walmart. I'm also pretty sure this is my grandma. So <laughs> this looks just like my dad's mom. Uh, so, and sometimes she watches the live stream. So uh, what's up, mama? So here's the last one. Uh, I don't know if you can tell what this lady's, uh, this sign on her back that she made and hung around her neck, but it says, this is not style. And it has a picture of like tattered jeans, like broken, worn out jeans. But it says, this is not style. It says, this is stupidity, uh, which is ironic given what this woman is wearing as she's walking around Walmart. But I thought that was funny that someone felt it necessary to, to make this sign to let us know what good fashion looks like. So you're like, okay, how does this connect with Luke? So when you go into Walmart, things like this, and, and there are literally thousands upon thousands of pictures like this, some better, some worse. Um, but if you notice, it's a Walmart. It's called the people of Walmart. So you go to Walmart, and it's just kind of interesting. You know, sometimes people are like, ah, I guess I've got to go to Walmart. Sometimes you kind of want to avoid that, or you want to go early in the morning or late at night to avoid these types of folks, these types of experiences. But here's one thing that you won't notice when you go to Trader Joe's. You won't find people like this. You don't, you, there's not a people of Trader Joe's website because you just, you expect for a different, you know, type of look to be at Trader Joe's or maybe Target, you know, if we're looking a little closer to town. Uh, there's a difference between the people of Walmart and the people of Target. And so you go to Walmart, you expect this. You go to Target and it's like, ooh, that kind of stands out. Like that's different because every now and then you see it. Here's where we are today. We're, we're talking about the nativity, Jesus' birth. 
Normally, we talk about this at Christmas time, and it's no surprise to us when we get around to the Advent, Christmas season, and you're like, hey, uh, let's talk about Jesus' birth, obviously. This makes sense. That's seeing these kinds of things at Walmart. Okay, this morning, we're in Trader Joe's, Target, uh, Whole Foods, something like that, and we have one of these people walking in, okay? People created in the image of God, by the way, who I love and appreciate, just like my own grandmother, uh, but they walk in looking like that. So as we're right here in the middle of September, but we've got to talk about the nativity because we're going through Luke and we're right here in chapter two. So while you're like, this is weird. I feel like I should be singing Christmas carols. I do too. It feels awkward, but just know that's where we are is in Luke chapter two. It feels a little bit out of place, but here we are. What we've seen so far, we've been here for the past two weeks. We saw at the very beginning of Luke chapter one, the first four verses, Luke lays out, he says, I'm writing this as an orderly account to you, Theophilus. He says, I'm writing this, so make sure we get this all down so we know what truth is. So you can believe every single word of this. I've looked at all of the details. Luke was a historian, a doctor. He was a really good theologian. He traveled with Paul, but he says, I want to lay this out for you. And then last week, Chris preached on uh, the beginning of chapter one. So he went from chapter from verse number five down to verse 56. Long sections. We're looking at long uh, sections of Luke. David asked me this morning after practice, he said, okay, so after I get through reading half of Luke, then I'm going to pray, right? I said, yeah, that's fine. Um, so, and that was not even, I mean, that was not even a whole chapter. So it's, it's crazy. Long portions of Luke. But, but Chris last week looked at Gabriel coming to two different people. He came to Zechariah, and he told Zechariah, he said, your wife Elizabeth is going to get pregnant. Well, the reason this is miraculous is because Zechariah and Elizabeth are both incredibly old. They, they're well past their birthing years. And for them, it's like, nah, I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen. So Zechariah says, I, I don't think so, Gabriel. I know you just appeared right here as an angel in my house, but I don't, or in the temple, but I don't really think that's what's going to happen. And so the angel said, Gabriel said, yeah, that's what's going to happen. And you're mute until that baby is born. So when we pick up the story in verse 57 of chapter one, we have Zechariah who hasn't talked in months because he didn't believe the word of the Lord from the angel. Then we get the angel Gabriel coming to Mary, who is a young girl who has never been with a guy. She's uh, a virgin. And so it would be biologically impossible for her to be pregnant with a child. But the angel Gabriel says, just like we had this miracle with this old lady Elizabeth, who's going to give birth to John, you're also going to give birth to the Savior of the world. His name is going to be Jesus. And so we have here what's already been set up, and we've seen this, is that God is faithful to his promises. So the people of God have been looking for centuries at this Savior, this coming Messiah. And so Gabriel has set the scene for us. He says, yes, Jesus is right here on the way. We have John the Baptist being miraculously birthed to Elizabeth, who's really old, and Jesus, who's going to be miraculously birthed to Mary, who there's no reason she should have been pregnant. So we've been set up so far that way. So, so we see that, that God keeps his promises, that God is faithful to keep his promises. And not only does he keep his promises in ways that maybe we can explain, God does the impossible. And the reason that God keeps his promises through impossible means is so that he alone gets the glory. It's only him who gets the glory from Elizabeth giving birth, from Mary giving birth. There's no other explanation for it. And so as Luke is writing these things down, as we read this some 2,000 years later, we can look back and say, man, God is amazing. And so at the end of last week, we get to Mary's Magnificat, which is her saying, man, praise God that I can give birth to Jesus. Thank you for your mercy. And we see mercy all throughout this first section of Luke 
Thank you for your mercy. I praise you. This is crazy. This is miraculous. And she says she pondered all of these things in her heart. So I want us to ponder these things, ponder the character and the nature of God, that God is going to do the impossible because of his character. This morning, we're going to see that Jesus came for the least. So God keeps his promises, but Jesus came for the least. That's who he stepped out of heaven. He condescended is a word that we use, but he came for the least. Now, Jesus did not come in some extraordinary measure, and we know this, we just read this, but, but Jesus came in an ordinary, unimpressive way. He came to a, a little girl that nobody had really ever heard of. He was born in a town that nobody really cared about. But Jesus was born in poverty so that we could experience riches. Now, some of you are like, yeah, yeah, now we're talking. Now we're talking. Let me, let me hear some more about that. Let me hear some more about those promises of riches. He experienced physical poverty so that we could experience spiritual riches. He was born and he lived in a very poor way so that we could experience the blessing of God, ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. And we see right here in these verses that we're going to look at this morning, we see this paradox, uh, a juxtaposition almost that Luke is making between greatness and humility, between greatness and humility. And what the author Luke tells us is, hey, in order for us to, to be great, in order for us to experience the blessing and the riches of God, we must first humble ourselves in the same way that Jesus Christ did. So for a lot of us this morning, uh, we, we've, me and my wife have watched several uh, 9-11 documentaries, and we were laying in bed last night watching another one, I mean, just crying. It's, it's incredible. You just watch the testimonies of these people. And so we've spent hours this week watching these things. But one thing I'm reminded of is, is even 20 years ago, if you remember when 9-11 happened, if you were around or if um, you were uh, a church-going person, if you were a believer, if you remember at that point, at, right after 9-11 happened, people started coming back into church. They were like, you know what? All, all the things that we've been pursuing, th there's something wrong with the world. And if you remember, that was a really good time to plant a church if you were planning one. Because people were like, man, we, we need something. People were in great need. All of a sudden, they were desperate. And I think over the past 20 years, we've kind of lost that desperation to some degree. And the reason for that is because there's not a whole lot of things that we need in this life. We are mostly taken care of physically. We're taken care of materially, financially. Most of us drove decent vehicles up in here this morning. We have a place to live. There aren't very many questions in life. There's not much where we're like, ah, man, I don't, I don't know how to, how to handle the situation. I don't know who to ask for this. We're not really struggling. There's not very much that we really need for. Now, there's a lot that we want for, but there's not much that we need for. And I would encourage us this morning, I think there, we probably come from two different vantages this morning. One is we have, we have incredible things that are blinding us to our spiritual need. And I would say, peek through those things. Are those things lasting? Are they bringing true, ultimate joy and satisfaction to your life? Those things are not, they're not going to be here forever. I would say the other, the other vantage, the other type of person that we have here this morning is someone who is like, man, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with life. And, and maybe you're there. Maybe you're struggling with anxiety or depression. And, and maybe the, the mental, psychological struggles of life, 
are blinding you to your need. And I'm not saying, hey, man, just believe in Jesus and you're never going to struggle with mental health ever again. But I'm just saying, sometimes we, it, it becomes, we, we, we find ourselves in this deep, dark dungeon. And we feel like the world is bearing down on us. And we just can't see the light that's at the top. Anybody there? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you know somebody in your life who is there. But we come from both of these places blinded. And so I would encourage us this morning, let's be repenting of those areas of blindness. Those areas where our eyes have been covered where our eyes are shielded from the truth of Scripture and the fact that Jesus came for the least. Our greatness, our pursuit of greatness has blinded us. So we jump into the passage, and David just read this for us, but we see uh, right there at the beginning of, of, uh, of this section of Luke chapter 2, we just, we just saw the birth of John the Baptist. If, we, if you look back at verse number 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. So when someone would give birth to a child, the friends and family and those in the city would gather around. And man, look at this, look at this beautiful little baby. But look at verse number 59 with me, if you would. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Now, if you have questions about the first half of that verse, you can ask somebody else. I'm not going to do a Greek study of, of all of those words. Um, so hopefully you understand those, or if you're a kid, you can ask your parents. Uh, but we'll look at the second half of that, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Now, understand both of these things are Jewish customs and traditions. They would be circumcised on the eighth day. They would be named after their father. But, but look down, what does is, what is, what is the mother, Elizabeth, say? She says, no, his name is going to be John, because that's what the angel Gabriel told her. Now look down, uh, look at verse 63. So they asked Zechariah, they're like, hey, uh, what do you really want his name to be? Because traditionally, according to our custom, you would name this child Zechariah. And he says uh, in verse 63, and he asked, or look at 62, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So they're asking Zechariah, so they have to be like, you know, what do you want? Because remember, he can't speak, but what this would also say is he probably can't hear either. And so we saw earlier in the, in the chapter that he was mute, but he was probably also deaf too. So then, verse 63, and he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And then verse 64, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Now, we're going to get to his blessing, his prophecy in just a second underneath that. But understand that the issue here is not, hey, should his name be Zechariah or John? Is there something special about the name? The issue with this is obedience. It's submission to God's word. If, if they had named him Zechariah, would, he have, would we have a guy named Zechariah the Baptist? It, maybe, I guess. But according to God's plan, his promise was for this guy's name to be John. And, and the word John means God is gracious. God is gracious. And so while a lot of this passage talks about the mercy of God, and you actually see it right here before we get to them naming the child John, we see the grace of God being exhibited through this son John. So we have Zechariah and Elizabeth, who didn't give in to the cultural customs of the day. They didn't say, you know, here's what society normally says. It says, go pursue these things. Name him this for the sake of his namesake. Uh, go, go do whatever the culture, the customs. And some of those things are good things. But they said, no, we would rather obey God. Their submission to God's word did what to the neighbors? It made them wonder. It brought about fear and amazement in them. It doesn't mean that they were scared to death. 
It means they were just like, wow, these folks are submitting to the will of God. It brings about wonder. And then look at verse number 66. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, and this is what the, the wonder, what it leads to. What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So this, this word hand right here is important. It's a metonymy is what we call it. So there's your $3 word for the day. Everybody say metonymy. There you go. So it's taking one of these physical aspects of God and saying, uh, or it's taking the, a, a character, an attribute of God and making it a physical nature of God. And some people are like, okay, well, it says that, that God is like, um, you know, in the, in the prophets, it says that, that God is like a mother hen who gathers, you know, who gathers her chicks under her wings. Does that mean that, that God is actually the image of a chicken? Does it mean that God is actually a female? No, it's, it's metonymy. It's saying this is the hand of the Lord. Does it really mean, literally mean that, that John the Baptist had the hand of God on him? And so he's walking around like this. Could you, no, he's saying, but the hand of God was with him. So he was blessed by God. We see here the hand of God was with John even before he was born. Remember when Elizabeth is talking to Mary and saying, yo, we're about to both have babies. Remember John the Baptist in her womb leapt for joy. We see the hand of God here on him when he is born. We see the hand of God on John when he baptizes Jesus. The hand of God was on John when he was in prison for teaching uh, those who are the most religious to repent. We see the hand of God on John even when he was put to death, when he became a martyr. I would encourage you parents, this obedience by these parents led to the hand of God being on this son. We want to teach our kids a lot of things, but there is no greater truth that we can impart to them than submission to God's word. That is a truth that's going to last well beyond the grave. A lot of the things that we impart to our kids and encourage our kids with and challenge them with and teach them, the values of the culture are only going to last until their grave and often not even until that point. Submission to God's word is going to last even beyond that. So we have the hand of God here. But then Zechariah, we see in verse number 67, he begins this prophecy, and, and David just read it, but his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And he goes on to talk about this, but here's what I want us to see. If you look down at, uh, if you look down at, at verse number 79, this is, this, would, this is, I know it's right at the end of the prophecy, but this characterizes the state of the people. And so at the very end, Mary's proclamation, if you, if you go back, if you want to read the Magnificat, Mary begins with this personal celebration, and hers goes to this nationwide broad celebration. Well, Zechariah begins with this broad celebration, look at God saving us, and he ends with this personal celebration. So we kind of get this, um, we kind of get this dichotomy between them. But we look at verse number 79, and Zechariah sums it up right here, and he says, the reason that God has done this is to give light to those who sit in darkness. Those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This would be us. This would be, and, and literally, this word darkness is those who are sitting in a dark, deep dungeon with no hope of getting out. But even in the midst of that, we have to go back and look at the, at the prophecy and why this is really good news for us. Because both Mary and Zechariah, their, their prophecies, their songs are about God moving on his people for the sake of salvation. And so both of them recognize, man, God is starting to really do something here in a tangible, literal, physical way with both of these children so how is he doing that? So if we're sitting here in the midst of darkness and, and the people of God have not heard from him tangibly, 
audibly in 400 years because they're sitting there literally also in darkness. So he says in verse number 69, so if we go back, we understand the context of them being in darkness. Look at verse 69. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, this horn of salvation, it represents, and this is, again, uh, it's used all throughout the Old Testament, but it represents an animal of strength. And this would usually represent an ox. We have a, a phrase uh, in English, and we say, man, that guy is as strong as an ox. Well, that's what he's saying here. He's saying in the midst of our darkness, this is so deep, we need somebody really strong to come along. And he begins with strength. He says, so he's raised up a horn of salvation. And then look at verse number 72. He goes from strength down to verse number 72 to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Now, now mercy is not giving someone a punishment that they deserve. Right? So if you want to have grace on someone, you give them what they don't deserve. Mercy, they deserve to be in darkness. We deserve to be separated from God. But in God's mercy, and it's not by anything here, it's not by anything that, that we have done, nothing by what they have done. It's only because of the character and nature of God. God steps into that darkness and says, it's my mercy. That's why I'm going to redeem you. Again, this is his entire plan. This word mercy sums up his entire plan. Look at verse number 73. This is the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He keeps his promises. He made this promise thousands of years before. It, remember, he goes to Abraham. You can look it up in Genesis chapter 22. He says, I, I want you to, uh, to go. He has, uh, Abraham has a, has a dream one night when he's asleep. And God comes to him and he says, I want to make this covenant with you, Abraham. I want to take these animals. And he cuts them in half and he lays them across. And there's blood draining down the middle. But God doesn't say, Abraham, you keep your part of the covenant, and I'll keep my part. No, God walks through those animals that are cut in half, essentially telling Abraham, I'm going to keep my part of the covenant, and I'm going to keep your part of the covenant. And we know from Abraham, he goes and sacrifices. He's about to sacrifice Isaac, right? He climbs to the top of the mountain. Abraham's like, ah, I, don't, I guess I'll do this. But at the very last minute, what, hap what happens? Someone says, Stop! There's a ram caught in the thicket. But here's how this points to Jesus. So here he says, here's this promise to Abraham. And while there was a temporary sacrifice that almost happened, there's an eternal sacrifice with Christ because when he's on the cross, no one yells, stop! No, Christ was sacrificed because of this oath, because of this promise to Abraham. So now Jesus is hitting the scene and these folks are stoked. Keep going, verse number 77. Why does Jesus have to come? To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The, the only belief system in the world that has forgiveness at its heart is Christianity. The only way that we can be forgiven is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's vital to salvation. And that's why he says the salvation at the core of it is the forgiveness of your sins. And what does the forgiveness of sins result in? Look at the very end of this passage. In verse number 79, it results in peace. Maybe someone in your family, maybe you have had cancer. And one of the best days and some of the best news that you can get if you've had cancer is when you walk in and the doctor says, your cancer is in remission. Am I right? But here's the reality, and again, some of y'all can attest. 
When the doctor says your cancer is in remission, he doesn't mean, hey, it's gone and it will never come back, does he? Because often we know, and I've seen this with folks in my life, that cancer is possibly, if not probably, going to come back eventually. But here's the beautiful part about forgiveness of sin. Here, when Zechariah prophesies and says, you can receive the forgiveness of sin. Your sin is in remission. It's gone. There is no coming back. What, once you are forgiven, you are forgiven forever. You are a sinner in the sight of God. Me and you both, brother and sister, we're both sinners. But when we, when we, when we receive forgiveness from God, our sin is gone forever. We are forgiven forever. We are forever at peace with God. Now, mercy is undeserved and it is free. But what does John say in 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 9? He says, in order for us to receive that, all we have to do is ask. We confess our sin and he is faithful to forgive us our sin. And so if you read right above this, in verse 79, this is the tender mercy of God. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I would ask you, friend, this morning, has that sunrise, has it illuminated your heart and your soul? Have you found that forgiveness in Christ? Or are you still trying to earn your way to God slowly but surely in the same way that our culture says that? Throughout this whole passage, you look in verse number 80, and the child grew up and became strong in spirit. Again, talking about John the Baptist. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, now this so far, Zechariah here, has defined the relationship between John and Jesus. And Zechariah says, the point of John's life is to point to Jesus. At no point does John say, hey, y'all, look at me. Look at how great I am. And I would just say, man, what a testimony that John was not pursuing his own greatness, but in humility, he was pursuing the greatness of God. John the Baptist was, was like a, he was like a church planter who planted a church of, and, and grew and grew and grew and ended up having hundreds and thousands of people. And then he just said, you know what? I'm going to hand this off to somebody else. I'm going to go do something else. We don't find that in our culture. We build something and we want the glory for it. John says, no, the relationship between us and Christ, all lasting meaning for our lives is when we are constantly pointing to Jesus Christ. Greatness comes from us serving Jesus, not from us serving ourselves. That's where true greatness comes from. And what does Luke say later? I think in chapter 18, he says, Jesus, uh, talking about the disciples, talking about us, we must decrease and Christ must what? He must increase. That's our, that's our message this morning because Jesus came to the least. So the prophet here, John the Baptist, he only points to Jesus. He doesn't take the place of Jesus. He's the one who says peace is coming, but Jesus is the one who ushers in peace. John says salvation is on its way, but Jesus is the one who brings in salvation. So we see, we see John he has a great role in the Messiah coming. But then we get to chapter 2, and we're really familiar with this. But I want to look at a few different things in this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, here's a picture of Caesar Augustus. Supposedly, I guess, this is what he looked like. But he was an adopted son of Julius Caesar. He was an adopted son of Julius Caesar. Now, he was known as, as a really good ruler. And in fact, in, in, this, in the first century, 
He was called the Savior. And at the very end of, right before the first century, he was, people called him the Savior and the Lord because he was a really benevolent leader. And under Caesar Augustus was a great time of peace. And he ruled for a few decades. Great time of peace. There was the first registration, verse number two, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, this governor, he was a regional governor. Think um, if Caesar Augustus is the president, uh, then Quirinius is kind of a cabinet member. Okay, so he's down there. He's got some stuff that he's in charge of. But, but understand, the, the goal of the Roman Empire was still power, prestige, greatness, tangible greatness. That's why they had a registration. That's why a census was happening. They did it for two main reasons. One was for money, so they could tax you for more money. They wanted to know how many folks are here, so we should know how much money there is because we want more money. But then secondly, we need to know how many soldiers we have so that we can go take over more land. So this... It, we talk about this paradox between greatness and humility. So Jesus comes in when at the time the culture is saying, be great, be powerful, be rich. And notice how also in the way Luke describes this, he starts with the greatest in the kingdom and he comes down and we end up with a little baby, a helpless baby who's born in a stable. But he's registered and if you go down they, they, they went to Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David which is called Bethlehem because he was from that lineage. In verse number six, and while they were there, the time came for her, Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lied him in, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now those swaddling cloths were uh, what they would wrap baby lambs in. So we see the imagery there. But here's what, here's what an inn, this word inn, uh, it actually, the, the literal translation in the Greek is kataluma. Uh, Everybody say kataluma. Yeah, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? If it was Spanish, we'd say Cataluma, <laughs> but it's not, it's Greek, all right? So, but, that's, but that's the word for that. So um, he, here's, a, here's, a, here's a picture. If you put that picture of, of, the, of that in, here's what it would typically look like. So as you had your house, uh, you had this, an area for the animals, but this in was actually, the, and the word here is actually guest room. So in the Greek, that word Cataluma is actually guest room. And so we think about this in like a hotel. There are other Greek words that actually Luke uses for a hotel. But this was probably, they probably had a relative there. Remember, they were going there because they were from there, and they probably had relatives. And so you had the, the regular living quarters, and then you had the stable, the stall where the animals were. But right beside that was where you had this guest room, where if you had somebody coming in, that's where they would stay. And this was often, even though this is uh, built up like this, uh, like a regular, you know, square structure, a lot of times that would be in a cave. It would be in a cave right beside your home, or maybe your home was built on top of this cave, or some sort of uh, impression in the rock. That's where you would keep your animals, and maybe that's where the guest room was. And so as we see, here's the, the kataluma. This, this is right beside the animal stall, which is why they wrap, they wrap baby Jesus Six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus in these swaddling cloths because they were right there beside the animals where the animals lived. Now, the, the point of this passage, the real point of this passage is not how to become great, but the fact that Jesus came for the least. The fact that Jesus came not as a great emperor, ruler on a white shining horse, but he came as a very small, insignificant child. He was powerless. But it says that he came, and we know this, this word Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
Now, to answer a few questions about this, because people are like, yeah, was he fully God? Was he not? I had my six-year-old ask me this last night. We were talking about uh, how, how, did he, how is Jesus God's son, but he's also God? Like, I'm like, Trinity, bro. <laughs> I mean, I'm getting out of this one as fast as I can. You know, like, I, I, I struggle with it too. But here are a few things that we know about uh, Emmanuel, about Jesus. Uh, a human did not become God, but God became a human. Now, a lot of other religions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, they actually teach that you as a human can become a God. But that's not Christianity. God became a human. It went the other way. Secondly, we know that Jesus existed before his birth. And there are some references there for you. Jesus existed before his birth. But also we know that Jesus did not cease to be God when he became a man. Jesus did not cease to be God when he became a man. It, that's important because it's not Jesus went back and forth. He was there before creation. We see that in John chapter 1. He spoke things into existence. But when he became a man, he did not cease to be God. It wasn't God minus man or man minus God. It was God plus man. So this is really good news for us that the creator of the universe would send his son. Which, by the way, you're like, ah, well, I don't know if I believe that. That's really tough to understand. Just, just know that if God's word is true, we submit to that. No, that's why Jesus was put to death, because he said, I am God's son. So this is not a claim that we're saying, ah, well, you know, at uh, the, the Council of Chalcedon or of Nicaea, you know, three and 400 years later, that I think we figured out that, that God is actually fully God and Jesus is fully God and fully man. No, Jesus said this about himself, that he was fully God. Demons said it about him. His disciples said it about him. The religious leader said it about him, and he never contradicted them. He said, yes, that's right. I'm fully God, and I'm fully man. And that's why he was put to death. So he's born. He's laid here. Look at verse number 8. In the same region, there were shepherds watching their flocks by night. In verse 9, there was an angel of the Lord who appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with what? With fear, which is a very normal, common, earthly response when you see the Shekinah glory of God show up. We see it almost every time. If you've got the presence of God, what do people do? Oh, man, there is God. <laughs> well, it is good to meet you in person. No, man, you can look back at, at Moses. You can look at, at Abraham. You can look at uh, Mary. And when they saw Jesus afterwards, there was an angel sitting there. They said, man, we are terrified, even at these angels, because they've been in the presence of God. A very normal, common response. Now, he went to shepherds who were unreliable, forsaken despised people. And what we see here, the angels provide this incredibly high theology to these incredibly low people. Notice the theology they say at verse number 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a, notice the three things that they say here, a savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the only place in the New Testament where these three titles of Jesus are put together. The only place so we have Christ the Lord, Jesus Christ, Messiah. We have all these other words. But right here, the highest theology goes to the lowest people. I would encourage us this morning. I think our wealth, I think that our prestige, our pursuit of more, as we try to build our own kingdoms, that we've lost sight of remaining low of approaching the glory and the word of God with humility. But here we see that salvation comes for those who are the least. You're like, okay, well, sh should I not buy nice things for my kids? Should I not buy a nice house? Should I not have a pool? Should I not drive a, a Beamer? Whatever it is. I'm, like, no, you can do those things. That's fine. 
as long as those things are being used for the kingdom of God. If you're doing those things and buying those things for the sake of your own kingdom, I would challenge you. The good news of Jesus Christ does not come for those who have everything. The good news of Jesus Christ, and we see Jesus doing this for 33 years, and we're going to pick up with his ministry next week. For 33 years, he came for those in need. So I'm not saying, hey, go sell everything and give it to the poor, but maybe. I'm saying the things that you have, the pursuit of your life, is it for the sake of your own kingdom or is it for the sake of Christ's kingdom? And brother and sister, uh, just know you're hearing this for the first time this morning, um, you know, me talking about this from this passage. I've been hearing this all week. And this is tough. This is really tough to hear from me. Because I'm like, man, is, is my life, is it a reflection of the kingdom of Michael or is it a reflection of the kingdom of God? And when we're so blinded with these things of life, we don't even recognize our greatest need. The shepherds recognize their great need. And they received the highest theology from these angels. We keep going. The shepherds go and they see the baby. Verse 19. But Mary, again, she treasured up all of these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Again, Luke is saying, man, they didn't miss a beat. This stuff was for sure. It was true. Here's what I want us to figure out this morning. How does the birth of Christ impact our lives today? How does the birth of Christ impact our lives today? And, and I think it, it impacts our lives in a few different ways. And, and I want us to walk away with some truths that we can hold on to that are really encouraging for us. But I also want, to, want us to walk away with some truths that may be convicting for us. And I want us to analyze the way that we live. The first one is this. If God was working through the politics of Rome and the geography of Israel, he wants to work through you. So wherever you find yourself accumulating things or in the midst of depression, in the midst of want, in the midst of much, in the midst of trying to figure out your life, in the midst of <laughs> regretting your life thus far, just know that God wants to use your life. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. You have been created in his image. And there is great peace in knowing that. He wants to use you. That's why you are here. Secondly, Christ stooping so low reminds us that even the most common tasks are part of his sanctifying work. Whatever you do, if, you're, uh, if you go to work every single day and you work eight to five and you work in a factory, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're a teacher who works with kids who have trouble reading, if you're an accountant, if you're uh, uh, an insurance salesman, if you're a doctor, if you're retired, whatever you do, just know that what you're doing is not just good for this world that Christ has given us, but just know that God wants to use that. You are there for a specific reason. Christ stooped low. Not so we have, okay, on Sunday mornings, that's the, that's the Christian time. That's the biblical. That's the church. That's the God time. No, he wants to use you where you are every single minute of the week. So be reminded that even as you're going about those daily tasks, God wants to use you where you are day in and day out. The third thing that I want us to be encouraged, maybe convicted by, is the fact that wealth ruins far more souls than poverty. You're like, hey, man, I feel like you're kind of stepping on the toes of everyone here who has the American dream. I know, man, like it stinks. 
<laughs> that's, that's my dream every single night too. Like I get it. But when Christ came, he didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't go on vacations. He, he didn't take days off. He didn't do these things. Is there anything wrong with those? Again, no. At, at the same time, he understands that we want to provide good things for our children. And I think that's good. I think good things for our kids, love it. I'm the kind of person who is, my love language is giving gifts. Don't buy me anything because I already did. <laughs> okay? It's, you know, it's, uh, it's on its way from Amazon if I need something. But I love buying gifts. I, I, that, that's like my, that's my go-to. This past week, I, I saw some pumpkin spice latte uh, soap uh, from Duke Cannon, and I was like, I'm going to get this for Chris Brown <laughs> uh, because he is, uh, you know, a basic white girl at heart. Uh, and so that, I was just like, man, I want to I buy him this, you know, PSL soap. That sounds like something he would love. That's my love language. I love it. There's nothing, wrong, there's nothing wrong with going on vacation. There's nothing wrong with buying good things. But when we see Christ lying in the manger here, may we be reminded that the way that we spend our money, the way that we spend our, our time, the way that we spend our conversations must be for his kingdom. And he is our savior. He is also our example. And so are we living like him? Or are we saying, thank you, Jesus. Thanks for doing that. Now I'm going to go build my kingdom over here. To be godless is a disgrace. To never consider these other aspects of life is a disgrace. But to be poor is no disgrace. To be selfish is a disgrace. But to be sacrificial is no disgrace. To be covetous and wanting more is a great disgrace. But to be open-handed and generous with what we've been given, that's the way we are called to live. That's who Christ came for is the least. Our adoration of Jesus leads to action. So we can gather, we can sing, we can worship. We go, Man, thank you, Jesus, so good. We see here, we see the neighbors. We see when, when uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were obedient to God. What did the neighbors do? They went and told other people. They were like, man, these folks actually are worshiping and doing and acting on what they say they believe, we're going to go do the same. We see the shepherds right here at the end of this section. We see the shepherds going and telling, they go and see Jesus, and then they're like, we're going to go tell somebody else. And so I would encourage you, if you say you love Jesus, if you worship Jesus, that spirit and that truth, that must involve the way that we live our lives as part of community. It must involve the way that we give of our resources. It must involve the way that we communicate with others about the good news of Jesus Christ. It has to impact every part of our lives. And so can we just peep through maybe all of these things that are hanging right down in front of us? Our social media presence and, and our income and, and the stimulus check and our political views and the Falcons game that's coming on at 1 o'clock. Like all these different things, they're right here in front of us. And can we just push us to the side for a second and say, man... What is of lasting importance and value? Our kids see that. Lastly, no matter how good you are, your greatest need is a Savior. No matter how good you are, your greatest need is a Savior. Christ came for those in need. God the Father did not send an economist because our greatest need was not poverty. He didn't send an entertainer because our greatest need was not boredom. He didn't send a, a philosopher because we weren't stooped in incoherence. He didn't send a psychologist because we were just maladjusting to the circumstances of life. 
He, he didn't send an administrator because the church needed better organization. God the Father didn't even send a religious leader because our greatest need was not to do more good works. God the Father sent his son as a savior because our greatest need is to be in relationship with him. We cannot attain a relationship with God except by having faith and trusting in him. We must repent of all of these other things, turn from the things that are, that are so easily weighing us down, the things that we're turning to, to the left and to the right so often. Repent of those things. Repent of your sin. Repent of thinking that you can attain the favor of God on your own. The folks here, Mary, Zechariah, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, who received the favor of God, the way that they did that was out of obedience to him, was out of submission to his will. Jesus Christ came. He was laid when he was a, a baby in a, you know, probably a wooden manger. And this points to his death because he was put upon a wooden cross. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, which was for lambs. But when he was put in the tomb, he was wrapped in, in cloths in the same way, the exact same cloths, because his body was completely dead. He was born probably in a cave of some sort, and after his death, he was placed into a tomb in the side of a cave. He didn't have anything. Christ's humiliation began right here at his birth, and it continued all the way through until his work was done. That's the Savior and the God that we serve and that we worship. Was a God who came humbly. He came for the least. He stooped so low that he could look each of us in the eye and say, your greatest need is in humbling yourself and repenting of your sin because you can't do it. You can't find your satisfaction anywhere else. We see that he was born here in this guest room. Go to Luke chapter 22 with me if you would. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. But Luke 22, it says this. And I want us to, to see something. So he was born in this guest room, this kataluma. Luke 22, beginning in verse number, 20, in verse number 7. This is when Christ is about to be going to the cross. So his ministry, his life begins in this guest room. We see in verse number seven, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? This, by the way, is the next time that Luke uses this word, kataluma where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So we see right here when Christ enters in, he says, he's, I'm coming humbly this first time. I'm not coming as some great power. So we can look back with this meal that we call communion. And we do this every single week at South Point. The reason that we do that is we take a piece of, the way that we do it is we take a piece of bread, which represents the broken body of Christ. He was humbled and broken for us so that we could be made whole. His blood was shed and we, we dip it in the juice, representing the shed blood of Christ because we are covered in his righteousness. We were given a new identity. But if we keep going in this, in this passage, 
he, he here talks about in verse number 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus is saying, I have identified with you. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So family, as we take part in communion this morning, we take the bread and we remember Christ. We look back at Christ. But then in verse 20, he says, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. We're reminded of the shed blood of Christ for us. We look back at his sacrifice. We look forward to his second coming. And we're able to look around. We are the family of God participating in this together. He has redeemed us as his people. His promise has been made true. He has kept that promise, not because we deserve mercy, but because he wants to pour that out on us. For those of us who have repented of our sin, this meal is for us. If you have not, you can just hang out right there in your seat. For those of us who, are, who have been steeped in sin, or maybe there's something even small, and you're like, ah, I'll take care of that myself. The mercy of God is here to cover that. Repent of that sin now. If there's something between you and a brother, between you and a sister, repent to that person as well. But we also get to rejoice in the fact that Christ is coming back again. And with every knee bowed around the globe, we are going to be singing praise in the same way that Mary and Zechariah did. Worthy is the lamb who was slain.